0: Without a doubt, processed meat is horrible for you. You you can't get away from that fact. So processed meat, bacon, um, you know, the Subway sandwich, uh, you know, cold cuts, horrible for you. Related with diabetes, cancer, life expectancy, heart disease, horrible for you.
1: That's Dr. Garth Davis. And this is part two of a very special best of 2015 edition of the Rich Roll podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I am your host. My name is Rich Roll. Welcome one. Welcome all to part two of our third annual Best of the Rich Roll Podcast anthology series. If you haven't already, I suggest listening to part one of the Best of 2015 first and then tuning into this one. So what are we doing here? Well, once again, this is a compendium of some, not all, but some, of my favorite conversations of 2015. It is our way of saying thank you, our way of giving back, our way of trying to help catapult you into the new year with the information and the inspiration you need to make it your best year yet. So once again, it's been an absolutely incredible year. And this is just a simple way of me saying, I appreciate you guys. And here's to an extraordinary 2016. Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level. The most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well being, courtesy of a doable, evidence based 12 week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge and nobody handles blood testing better than inside tracker who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests to unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge visit theproof.com/livingproof and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash Roll. For 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's livemomentou com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, so let's kick things off with a question. Because look, it's one thing to thrive on a plant-based diet as a skinny endurance athlete, a guy like me. But what about sports that place a premium on size, speed, agility, power, quickness, and just plain brute force? Sports like football is it possible to compete in the NFL, not as a punt returner or as a quarterback or even a running back, but as a defensive lineman, a position where only the absolute biggest, baddest, strongest, and fastest survive? Well, let's meet David Carter, AKA the 300-pound vegan.
2: We were in our apartment and we were watching, we were binge watching, Netflix, all the vegan, uh, documentaries on Netflix. <laughs> what a night. Right. Right. <laughs> so we were watching.
1: I, I, I take it. This
2: is Paige's idea. No, no. It, well, it was mine. I'm, a, you I'm a, I'm a little nerd, right? I'm a nerd on the inside. But what motivated you to even want to watch those documentaries well, to yeah, begin they, with? Yeah. Paige. Okay. <laughs> but we were watching, uh, we were watching, um, Forks Over Knives, one of the many that we watched. And, um, uh, the doc was on there, and he was talking about how, uh, at the time I was suffering, let me go back, at the time I was suffering from tendonitis, mm-hmm. I would soak in the bathtub, and I would try to lift myself up out of the bathtub, and it felt like somebody at, would take a bat to my elbows, and I just, I would like almost collapse, mm-hmm. and the pain was so intense and so sharp. And it was tendinitis. Are you getting like injections for that, and on like a battery of meds, or? Yeah, I had, they were giving me not injections, but they were giving me Celebrex or Naprosyn or something like that. They were like, it's just tendinitis. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's nothing. You know, the only way you can you can get rid of that is Celebrex. And Celebrex, man, that stuff's so bad for you. Like, I hope I don't get sued for saying that. But that stuff's so bad for you, causes heart problems and all that kind of crap. But. um, Anyways, and, and, and it arth- wasn't doing anything. And arthritis too. And right? arthritis. You got arthritis. Yeah, arthritis. High blood pressure, probably from the medication and what I was eating. But you know, that stuff, man, it's so at the age like twenty five or yes. you know. that's the most scary part, right? And I'm like, Why how the hell do I have high blood pressure, tendinitis, and arthritis or like it feels like arthritis coming on? I'm twenty five years old. Like I've lived like hopefully a quarter of my life. <laughs> right. You know? So uh Yeah, man, I'm getting out of the bathtub and it's like so much pain, elbows hurting, tendonitis, really bad. We're watching the documentary Forks Over Knives. And the doc goes on and he goes, uh, the the cause of inflammation, tendinitis, people, all these people are suffering from tendinitis is milk. And (laughs) like milk and and meat and dairy is causing all this. It causes inflammation Inflammation. in the joints. Mm -hmm. And then... I was like, "Wow, is it really that simple? Like, am I, Is that the reason why?" I was like, "I need to lay off the meat." We kept watching the documentaries, like a uh, cow, not cowspiracy, wasn't out yet, um, Frankensteer, mm-hmm. and where the meat was coming from. And we were seeing, I was seeing how they spray all the cattle with uh, pesticides, and they, and eighty uh, percent to keep the flies off of them, and, and you know all that crap that's in the pesticides, and eighty percent of antibiotics that are supposed to go to humans go to animals, mm-hmm. like all the ones that FDA or whoever didn't clear, they go to the animals and they feed them because they're walking around their own shit. And so, you know, and they eat their own shit and they, they cannibalize the cows and feed them cow blood from the other cows that died and the other cows that, that died, died of just natural, or not natural sickness, but sickness. They feed them those cows. So I was like, man, it makes sense why I'm not, and, you know, the top of my game right now, why, mm-hmm. why my tendinitis is coming on like it is, or, you know, so after that, you know, I went vegan and literally like, that's amazing though. Cause I would think that at that moment, you're also thinking,
1: yeah, but I can't do, I'm, I'm in the NFL, man. Yeah. I can't like, I hear that, but like, if I go vegan, I'm going to lose all my muscle. Like, how am I going to ever stay strong? How am I going to keep the weight? You're having trouble keeping the weight on as it was. As, as it, was. it was. I was like, well, first of all, so I was that's like. that's a pretty
2: terrifying prospect or pretty ballsy. Yeah, it, it was. I was scared. I was scared. I was really scared. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? I was like, man, forget it. You know, like, it, it's at the, right now it's like this. It's like if I I can go vegan or I can just suffer and like have tendinitis and probably die at like the average death of a football player is fifty six years old, mm-hmm. and most people don't know that, and that's yeah. from eating all that crap and taking. It's a b- heart disease. I mean, heart, heart disease, disease heart right? disease, and stroke. A lot of guys stroke, and so I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'd rather have quality of life.
1: Next up is Michael Greger, MD, the wizard behind NutritionFacts. which is my favorite online destination for all things nutrition. He's also a newly minted New York Times bestselling author by way of his groundbreaking recently released book, How Not to Die, which is this exhaustive 600-plus page encyclopedic examination of how nutritional and lifestyle interventions can help prevent and even reverse the top 15 causes of premature death in America. Have a listen.
3: So much of science is now follow the money. Um, And so – What do you do with, you know, an egg board funded study or the, you know, Cattlemen's Beef Association? You don't know. The problem with conflicts of interest is – these financial conflicts of interest is that you don't know what to do with them because – I mean – Basically, the, the, the big controversy is, did they or did they not divulge their conflicts of interest, right? I mean, that's kind of the big, you know, you know oh, did they get money? Was it did it meet a certain level? A lot of journals be like, if you can get $5,000, but if you get $5,001, all of a sudden you have to list that you got the mm-hmm. funding. From some but that's not, for me, that's not the issue. The issue isn't... just the science hold the up? The fact that there's this money in science in the first place. I mean, the fact that there's a the conflict of interest is there, not whether it's disclosed or not. And it's because you get a study. Uh, you get a study that shows Nuts is Great and it's done by the Walnut Commission. And you're saying, okay, is it... I mean, did they make stuff up? Did they just design a study to give a certain point or is it totally a great study and they, they just it wouldn't have gone done and we should be thanking the walnut commission because otherwise we wouldn't know about the wonders of walnuts right um and so basically I, it, it just gives you makes you think again makes you really dive into the you know materials and methods and be like okay did they put this study together in a way to get some kind of desired mm-hmm. result
1: And how often when you look at such a study do you come to the conclusion like, oh, no, it actually – it holds up. I understand there is this conflict of interest built into it, but nonetheless, I can still see the value of this. Or is it almost invariably a situation where you're discarding it?
3: Well, it's – you know, often rather than discarding it, I actually you know do a video about it and show exactly what they did. Like this Mm. is how – you know the the bold study, this beef study. They talk around how you can add you know, lean beef to a diet and your cholesterol gets better. And what they do? They added lean beef to a diet in which they cut out cheese and chicken so much they actually drop saturated fat below. That adding, so you added beef to the diet, but you cut out so much cheese and chicken mm-hmm. that you actually have less saturated fat, and the cholesterol went down. Surprise, surprise. Um, I mean, it's just such kind of blatant stuff that anyone. Even taking a second look at it would—I mean—just would pop right up as like kind of just this outrageous manipulation. But you know, it gets tons of press. Yeah, but, I they, mean, people don't. Know.
1: Nobody, nobody gives it a second look, other yeah. than people like yourself. Right. Uh, yeah. And and certainly, you know, unless you have a really kind of. Uh, you know, sort of unusual journalist who's willing to kind of do right. that kind of work, it ends up in the media. So there's this enmeshed kind of media relationship that translates into, you know, butter is back on the cover of Time magazine and, you know, all this sort of stuff that, that occurs or just the sort of dismissal of the latest World Health Organization recommendations right. on, on red meat and, and processed meats, right? Which we can talk about a little bit, I suppose. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. You know, one more. You know, one other thing with the conflicts that makes it even more difficult is that beyond the financial conflicts. There are kind of like ideological conflicts. Or so, for example, there's this amazing research on the spice saffron, right? That and all, and it's all independently funded, but there are all these Iranian scientists. And saffron is like this major export out of. I mean, that's like mm-hmm. the number one producer in the world. They have this great national pride over the stuff. Is it possible they're tweaking results? I mean. I mean, it would be nice to just get some independent, even though they're not getting money from the saffron industry, right? Or if you have all these New Zealand kiwi fruits, are great studies, you're just like, oh, okay. But I would love to see a, you know, a Scottish kiwi fruit study showing how great, you know, I mean, come on.
1: But is there such thing as an independent study? I mean... Somebody's got to pay for this. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Well, right? no. So how it does that pub- work? It
3: should be publicly funded, right? I mean, so the that's what we have the National Institutes of Health for. Okay. I mean, we, you know that this is a public good, and so we should have public funding. Otherwise, we run into all these problems.
1: But what does that look like? I mean, how many of these studies really are publicly funded? There certainly can't be adequate amount of funding to really do the extent of nutritional research that no, I would no. imagine you would. And that's would right. And, no, and that's
3: why we. And that's why we have these problems. I mean, so. You know, there's, you know, you get some, uh, you know, there's these, you know, great folks out there like uh, David Katz at Yale, Mm -hmm. who's accepted egg board money to run these egg studies. And, you know, you talk to him about it, and he's like, where do you get money? Like, if you don't accept money from, you know, corporations these days, how are you going to fund your, I mean, you just can't fund a research team. Where are you going to pay your grad students from? I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, I mean, it's a real issue. And so... The answer. And David Katz is one of the good guys. Absolutely. No, no. (laughs) Tremendous respect Uh for him, right? But it's like you got to deal with reality. You got to deal with the, you know, the, the, you know, and so it's all nice for us to say, oh, we should be all independent. But it's like, okay, well, you got to get the money from somewhere. It's interesting. Some of these studies were like literally out of. Signed his own pocket. Like they thought they had this really great idea. They wanted to, you know, see if it worked. And so they did it themselves, Mm -hmm. you know. But with no corporate budget driving its promotion, it just gets buried in some dusty stacks of some, you know, library basement and never sees the light of day. And so I saw it as my kind of role in the world is to take all that amazing science that was done, even if it gets past the funding stage, but then just got lost to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, for the same reason you don't see ads on TV for sweet potatoes. There's just no kind of profit motive to get it out to the world. Right. Um, so so what's
1: your reaction when you see something in the media that you feel is, uh, you know, not an accurate representation of what's going on? Like right now, you know, let's just talk about, the low-carb craze. Mm. Everybody's all about low-carb. Mm. Ketosis is the greatest thing ever. You know, like all this sort of stuff, right? Mm. And that's very, very popular right mm. now. And there's a lot of people who are espousing the benefits of this, not just for weight loss, but for health. And, you know, to the extent that it makes it on the cover of Time magazine. Mm. Saturated fat. Yeah. Is new best you know, friend, I mean, so, of, this sort of yeah. Thing. <sighs>
3: I try to stay as much away as much possible from the lay um, media, just because. But your your job, I, I mean, you're a I voice
1: piece know, for know. the layperson, right? I it's almost know. your mantle to translate this stuff, right?
3: right. no, so sometimes I, I'm kind of forced into it. Um, so like the saturated fat stuff It's just like, I always am hoping someone else will take it on because I just want to, you know, cover the cover the science and not kind of go back and fight back against, you know, uh, but. You know, I wait, I wait, no one's going to do it. Okay, fine, I'll do it, right? Like, no one did a really good thing against Atkins, so finally I, you know, wrote the book on Atkins, and then, you know. Um, and so, I mean, I, I usually get kind of dragged into it later on, um, hoping that someone will else will kind of take the mantle and do that kind of piece and let me just stick to the science and, you know... Uh, mm-hmm. Rather than kind of, because otherwise you just get caught in these get kind of caught, of endless yeah. It's like a vicious cycle right, right. of he said she said. Right, kind right, of right thing, right. 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 The um, but the, you know the 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 WHO story about processed meat that was a real breakthrough. Yeah, and it made a lot
1: of media, it and did. there was a lot of internet chatter, of course, back yeah, and yeah. forth. But I think you know it's really making people question you know their their dietary choices when it comes you, to that stuff. You
3: know, what's interesting though, which seems to be kind of bearing the lead here, but. You know, so processed meat, so you read a, a good, you know, kind of in depth story about they talk about this thirty-four thousand number where they looked at the burden of disease study, which is the biggest study looking at risk factors and death and mortality in the world, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank. This is the study to find out how many people soda kills, how many people processed meat kills, how many lives you could save if people ate whole grains or fruits or more vegetables. I mean, this was the study that put it all together and found that thirty-four thousand cancer deaths a year linked to, um, uh, to processed meat consumption. But that same study that's been quoted in all these things found that 840,000 people overall die from processed meat because it contributes to high blood pressure, kidney disease, all these other things. And so, okay, there's that, you know, but what about the other 800,000 people? There's wow. like a meat-borne epidemic every year of people dying from processed meat. I maybe cancer was almost like the footnote to to, a a bigger to the massive amount of right. I mean, in fact, I mean, there's these studies, you know, you know, estimating that you know if uh, you know if if everyone who ate processed meat cut down their processed meat consumption like a half strip of bacon a day from whatever they're eating before, like how much we could, how many lives we could save on a population level, like a certain percentage of mortality overall for the entire population could be prevented. I mean, those are just amazing stats, mm-hmm. um, and right because all the attention surprised. was on
1: cancer, and it was like if you broke down the numbers and the percentages, it still really would only impact like a relatively few number of people. Right? No. Right. Population. So raising
3: right. So raising your you know risk of colon cancer a few percent. I mean, you know, and so colon cancer is now the third leading cancer uh, killer. What about heart disease? What about? I mean, there's so I, don't, I mean, the the risks associated with these products. But that's maybe part of the kind of the reductionism where, you know, we used to talk about individual nutrients. Now we're talking about mm-hmm. individual foods as they pertain to particular diseases. But, I mean, you have to look at the impact. I mean, so, like, the good impact of, you know, this one, you know, broccoli, not only, impact, you know, when I talk about, you know, I have the little broccoli chapter then and say, as I mentioned in chapters one, three, five, seven, you know, and, uh, liver cancer and the stroke and the, just like, Whole plant foods can benefit multiple body systems. You can see some of these foods that are adversely impacted can adversely impact the entire organism. Right. And so you really need to look at it overall. And so when someone says, so let's say there was a study that came out that said, you know, bacon was good for preventing cataracts or something, they would never do that because it's an oxidation <laughs> thing. But it's like even if it was good, here's this body of evidence showing bacon does all these other horrible things to your right. body. So it's like you still wouldn't eat it. You know, it's like some people say to me, well, aren't you cherry picking here? I have a study that's like independent that shows that, you know, the opposite of what you said. And, you know, that that's that was actually a tobacco industry tactic. They, they criticized the American Lung Association. They actually have a stack of 100 papers showing that smoking is good for you, not neutral. Not not bad, but actually good for you. And mm-hmm. they criticize the American Lung Association for never mentioning this body of evidence showing how good smoking is for you. For example, smoking protects against ulcerative colitis. Smoking protects against Parkinson's disease. Very strong protection against Parkinson's disease. All right? Okay. Now, and why don't they ever mention? It's like this anti-smoking conspiracy. It's like, they, why don't they... Right? And so... Okay, fine. Tobacco protects against Parkinson's, but even if you just forget lung cancer, forget if you just cared about your brain, you still wouldn't smoke because it so increases your stroke risk. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, so like, so you, you understand how the American Lung Association is sticking with the overall balance of evidence and trying to represent what the body of evidence shows. The body of evidence shows that smoking is bad. And so that's why, the the studies that they promote and have on their website reflect what's in the overall body of evidence i mean and people just seem to you know miss that point
1: from corporate lawyer to ambassador of sweat and swagger robin arzon is all about how to undo ordinary tell your own story and do epic shit She is a super inspirational modern face of active female empowerment. I love her to death. And in this second appearance on the show, she talks all about how she's navigating her latest obstacle, type one diabetes. So check it out.
4: You know, honestly, the diabetes diagnosis was, it took the wind out of me for about 35 seconds. And mm-hmm. then I looked at the endocrinologist and I was like, n- with not a hint, I, w- I was just, I literally looked her in the eyes and I was like, how can I run a hundred mile race? Mm-hmm. And she was like, uh, I'd never met her before. This was a totally emergency appointment, you know? And she's pulling out like, she's starting to pull out the USDA, like, this is how many ounces are in a glass of milk bullshit. And I was like, homegirl, this is mm-hmm. not the conversation we're having right, right. now. <laughs> and... Like, thankfully, you know, she's amazing and I have a great team. But in those few days that it was just like, ah, get her insulin. What's going on? Like, And I didn't even know really what type 1 diabetes was. In my mind, I was just like, How do I continue being an endurance athlete? And I, you know, I'm just in the beginning of my journey. So I'm like, I'm not stopping now.
1: Well, I think even the most positive people would at least need a couple days. You know what I mean? Like 30 seconds. Like, I was like, how do you, what do you attribute? Like, are you just wired that way to be like finding the positive in everything? Or like, or did you, have you trained yourself to be in that headspace?
4: Mm, I think it's probably a combination of both. My mother is a really positive person. So even despite her, MS diagnosis and other things that have happened in her life, you know, Cuban refugee, you know, just life. She has always treated – she's met life's adventures with um, class and humor. And now I've infused, I think, a little bit of swagger and expletives into the mix, and then I'm just like, fuck it, then just keep moving. Um, But but in all seriousness – I do think it's part – in part my mother's example and also it is absolutely a choice. We choose how we react to things. Um, I don't think – I don't think life happens to us. Like we happen to life. And if we're constantly always reacting to wh- how things are, are – are, what's, to what's thrown at us instead of proactively being like, I am choosing this now. Mm-hmm. I am choosing this path. So – when the endo was like, okay, it's type one. I was like, oh shit, that sucks. I thought it was pancreatic cancer. Better than that. How do I run a hundred mile race? What's the technology available? So within two weeks I was on a pod and then I think within three and a half weeks I was running the New York City half marathon. Right. So as planned, you know, that, that was, that was always the plan. And it was during the same time that I was New York Roadrunners had chosen me as a social media reporter, and I, and I had no idea what – and, you know, as part of that engagement, I was going to run five or six races for New York Roadrunners, including the New York City Marathon. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at my 2014 race schedule like, I don't, I don't even know how the hell I can do this. But I was just like, I'm going to try.
2: Right. And One day,
1: just show up for the day as it comes. Say again? And move forward. Like, just show – Just yeah. every day, wake up just and keep like, showing right, up. what's happening today. Just yeah. keep
4: – you know that willpower muscle, it can get fatigued, but mm. it gets stronger. You know, mm-hmm. and I I look at things like I have a superhero toolkit, and I didn't think that an insulin pump was going to be part of that. But you know what? Like <laughs> yeah. that's what? not part of your whatever. Like, <laughs> like
1: Wonder Twin powers activate, like sort of. Yeah, you know,
4: yeah. Like Shira didn't have insulin pack of, but <laughs> yeah, Robin NYC does. So and Beyonce wasn't built in a day so I just have to take it step by step
1: yeah but like the the comfort level with which you just sort of walk with that and you're like yeah man here it is it's right here check it out and let's rock it To you know like that attitude is really powerful and I think that's what people oh, are thanks. responding to you know what I mean like like, yeah, I got this, you know, do you think I like, you know, like, do you think I like having this big thing on my arm, you know, sticking out, like, especially as a girl, like, you know, probably not, you know what I mean, but you're like, you're not trying to hide it, you're like, yeah, it's right here, it's awesome, you know. When I
4: had the training for the pod, and it's funny how things are so daunting in the moment, like, I remember the first time I had to give myself an injection, or the first time I had to fill my pod, or it was just so frustrating, because I didn't know how to do it, and I was like, I just want to be efficient and good, and it's a process success is so circuitous and iterative um as it was with my di- my diabetes management but i remember when i was d- going through the training of how to put on the pod and and wear. and she was like oh well you know you need a place that has some fat and so really it's just like my hip, my hip area and and she's like oh and the back of your arms will work and i was like oh, i can't put that on the back of my arm like that's visible how mm-hmm. and i was just like mildly offended and then not even a week later i was like oh slap this thing on here whatever right. um yeah and for
1: the listener who might not be familiar or maybe didn't listen to the first time we talked about this like it's it looks like a a little uh, you know it looks like you have kind of i don't know what like a pack of gum stuff it your, looks your it your looks like an old you know? school beeper yeah yeah like, like a beeper like it's like the a, a size of
4: a beeper on a band-aid <laughs> With like a one with a one inch needle that goes on into my skin and I wear it and uh-huh. I change it every every few days, but um but the coolest thing is you know it's funny sometimes athletes will stop me and they're like dude like what is that they think it's like some next level heart rate monitor right, or like right. something really I'm like it's just insulin bro uh-huh. but um
5: but what else could you put in there but yeah but but t- but
4: uh, diabetics will stop me and yeah. I love that. And a woman who who rides with me, she was like, Wow, my husband has type one diabetes and he hasn't revisited getting a pod for years. And now that I see how small yours is, like, I'm gonna encourage him to talk to his his doctors about it.
1: Because I mean, what's the reticence? Because it's a this pain is, in the butt or This like is this-,
4: this is the smallest with no tubing. So mm. it's I found one with no tubing because I knew that would work best for me. Mm-hmm. And the advancements in the technology really have come a long way, even right, in the right. last five years. So, right. you know, type ones or diabetics in general who, who need this type of insulin management, I really recommend looking into it.
1: Our culture is obsessed with protein. Obsessed. But this fixation isn't just misplaced, and it isn't just unhealthy. It's downright killing us. Bariatric surgeon, Ironman athlete, and author of Proteinaholic, Garth Davis, MD, dropped by to cut through the morass of confusion and hype surrounding popular diet trends and set the record straight on how to best eat to thrive. Check it out.
0: There is – what people miss is there's a huge, huge literature about plant-based diets and about eating meat and A person who's experienced in reading this literature, understanding it, can make pretty good conclusions. And uh, it is not as relative as people make it out to be.
1: Mm -hmm. So what would be, in the most general sense, some of those conclusions? Based on the studies
0: and the research that you've kind of immersed yourself in. Oh, yeah. Um, Without a doubt, processed meat is horrible for you. you. You can't get away from that fact. So processed meat, bacon... Um, You know, the Subway sandwich, uh, you know, cold cuts, horrible for you. Related with diabetes, cancer, life expectancy, heart disease, horrible for you. Red meat, um, for the most part, looks like it is not good for you. Uh, Definitely associated with diabetes, definitely associated with diabetes. I'm Mm. not quite sure you could be vegan and be diabetic. I know there's about a 2% uh, incidence of this, but I don't understand it. I like to see those people more clearly Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of studies that go on with that um animal products in general seem to be leading to premature aging in many of the studies definitely a link with cancer different meats with different cancers for for instance chicken is strongly related with um uh, lymphoma and leukemia whereas meat is strongly related with colon cancers and uh and some of the other reproductive cancers. Um, Prostate is very, very strongly linked with dairy, eggs, and uh, meat. Um, Definitely a heavy animal protein diet is associated with heart disease, definitely is associated with high blood pressure, and it's definitely associated with a shorter length of life. And the interesting thing about the longevity studies is we talked about taking out confounding factors If you take out a lot of confounding factors, you get to the point where you're almost taking away a correlation. And yet after really rigorous statistical analysis, there's still a finding that if you eat a plant-based diet or if you eat less meat, you live longer.
1: Hmm, Interesting. Well, I mean, those are some pretty you know, bold statements that fly in the face of what seems to be quite popular right now, which is, you know, we can go through them, you know, in in a bullet point way. But why don't we just start with saturated fat, right? There's this sort of populist notion at the moment, um, backed by certain studies that basically says, Everything you ever heard about saturated fat is wrong. Saturated fat is not your enemy, and it's not linked to the incidence of
0: heart disease.
1: Is that a fair characterization of kind of where a certain school of thought is coming from? Actually, the
0: school of thought has gone worse. They now say saturated fat is good for you. Right, so you'll you'll see those things. You know, bacon is good. And the funny how I saw an article: bacon is good for you. And it wasn't about any testing of bacon being good for you. It was about saturated fat being good for you. Now, the studies that you mentioned that um, called to question saturated fat, um, they never said saturated fat is good for you. That's not their comment. They questioned whether it was as strongly correlated with heart disease as we previously thought. Now, the main study, a study called Siri Torino, is a perfect example. Of over-adjusting your statistical analysis. Keep in mind, every author on that article was paid for or receives payment from either meat, milk, or dairy.
1: Mm-hmm. What's that study called?
0: It's the Siri Torino study. S-I-R-I-T-A-R-I-N-O. That is the study that really started it all. That's the study that all these you know journalists like Tobbs and um, uh, the other one in Gary New York Times. Yeah, that's the one they just jumped on mm-hmm. and, and went with it. And was that
1: the basis of the Time Magazine, Butter is Back article? Absolutely,
0: yeah. It's the, it's the basis of every article they, that ever comes out. And so what did that study say? So they, they looked at a, a bunch of studies and they said um, basically that saturated fat is not correlated with heart disease. But here's the problem. First of all, you, you hear this term thrown around a lot called cherry picking where they cherry-picked articles that would basically give their answer. Because I could have done that same study and brought a whole different group of articles and gotten a completely different st- uh, analysis. Mm-hmm. But we'll put cherry-picking aside. The problem is a lot of the studies that they picked did something called over-adjustment. So what they did, it's just like we talked about before. If we're going to do a study and we're going to remove confounding variables, meaning variables that might affect Uh, independently affect the result. So we're trying to see if saturated fat causes heart disease. So we want to take out other things that may affect heart disease. So for instance, if you're diabetic, we're taking you out. You're not in the study. Mm -hmm. And we'll look at our population and we'll say, well, if you're morbidly obese, we know that independently affects that, so we're going to take you out. Now, funny, the the more you take out, the more you're taking out away from people that, you know, like plant-based diet benefits and stuff like that. But here's the key. They took out people that had high cholesterol. Because high cholesterol is an independent cause of heart disease. But saturated fat causes heart disease by raising cholesterol in part. So by removing those people from there, you're removing the people that actually are affected by the saturated fat. You're leaving, for the study, people that have a genetic predisposition where they could eat saturated fat, not raise their cholesterol, and therefore won't get heart disease. Mm -hmm. It's, It's ridiculous. Now, the second study that came along was a a study by Child Artery, and um, it was in... I think it was in the British Journal of uh, Medicine. Um, And that study did the same kind of things as the serotonin study did, but on top of it, there were people that were on Lipitor while doing the study. So they're taking a drug that's supposed to get rid of the effects of saturated fat, and then they're eating saturated fat and not getting heart disease. But that wasn't
1: taken into account? No. That's interesting. Yeah. So, all right, so then that begs the question of the impact of cholesterol on heart disease. And I, and I guess that means you have to talk about the difference between, um, you know, sort of serum cholesterol and dietary cholesterol, right? The, the yeah. difference between eating cholesterol-laden foods and the impact of that on cholesterol and what that causes in terms of health.
0: Yeah, I mean, eating cholesterol does raise cholesterol. The only place we get cholesterol is from animal products. Um and cholesterol definitely is associated with heart disease. Now, the problem is we've gotten a little bit more scientific nowadays so that we don't just look at cholesterol per se. However, the largest study that's been done looking at cholesterol in America in a population was the Framingham study. And Dr. Castelli himself said that possibly the problem we have is that we set what we call a normal cholesterol too high. Mm -hmm. and that a normal cholesterol should actually be lower. And he noted that under a total cholesterol of 150, they never in all the years they studied Framingham saw anybody with heart disease. He said, if you keep your total cholesterol under 150, you're not going to get heart disease. Mm -hmm. We're more specific now. When I see someone with a high cholesterol, I want to know their LDL particle size, their ApoB protein. I mean, there's there's a specific type of cholesterol that's dangerous. And if you have that specific type of cholesterol that needs to be addressed, then you need to be on you know seriously low fat. And low and,
1: and what is the uh, impact of ingesting cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, on your cholesterol levels? Because isn't part of this idea or this argument that that dietary cholesterol is not impactful on those cholesterol levels? Yeah,
0: and it's it's just silly. Um, it, it, without a doubt, if you eat cholesterol, but here's the problem. And it's a big problem with our nutrition in general. We get down into what's called reductionist food science. We try to take, you know, one part of a food away. It's like nothing bothers me more than when I'm ordering a salad and the waiter says, "Would you like a protein with that salad?"
2: Mm -hmm. Because I and then I always,
0: yeah, I always have to pick on them. (laughs) And you know, don't (laughs) poor guy had to get me at the table, and you know, then I'm always like, well, you know, what do you mean? He's like, well, do you want, chicken or steak?" And I'm like well, there's more calories from fat and chicken, so are you really just asking me if I want some fat with my salad? Yeah. (laughs) And the guy's like, uh, you know.
1: Josh Lejani is a guy who lives in Southern Louisiana. He took it upon himself to change his life. He lost 200 pounds. He went on to run a half marathon, then he ran a marathon, and then he stepped it up and even ran an ultra marathon all on a whole food plant-based diet, which is like remarkable, right? What an extraordinary transformation. In fact, I would say he's one of the most inspirational every man you will ever come across. But that's actually not the most incredible thing about this guy. What's really amazing to me is the extent to which Josh transformed his entire life and just how he did it, not by just changing his diet and holding strict to a fitness regime, but by actually changing how he thought about himself. I absolutely love this guy. He's like a little brother to me, and I'm really pumped and excited to share this segment with you, so enjoy. What I think is interesting is that at some point along the way, you you kind of made this decision that this was not about weight loss, this wasn't about a number on a scale, it wasn't even necessarily as much about being healthy, but you made this decision, like I'm going to be an athlete. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of talked about it earlier today. Like you decided to tell this new story about who you are, as opposed to like, I'm Josh, the overweight, funny guy. Like I'm mm-hmm. Josh, the runner, I'm Josh, the athlete. And then you could kind of let go of that pressure of whatever the scale set and just focus on getting better as an athlete. And mm-hmm. then I think, I think I recall you saying the last time we talked that that was like a, you know, when, everything, it was kind of a quantum leap in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, weight loss and then how you were able to, like,
6: rapidly improve. Right. Because the mind is so much more powerful than I ever gave it credit for. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, and when – because I know so many runners. I have so many runner friends that are like, oh, I don't know. That's too fast for me. Or, oh, I'm just – you know, they – sell themselves short a lot and and I don't think they really realize how powerful it is to say to yourself you don't have to be arrogant about it but we're bad we're badass we mm-hmm. can handle this and 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 it takes that and then in a race you know you you're running and I know that I have run myself to dry heaves on the track I know where i've from where I've come. And so when I'm in those last miles of a race and, uh, you know, no offense to anyone else in the race, but I see a guy that's ahead of me, a part of me thinks he doesn't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. So I'm, t- I, and I think that that's totally natural and totally human. I think that's what we do, you know, but that's such a huge leap from being
1: the guy who's, you know, kind of Self-deprecating and, and, you know, and kind of privately shameful about the it, it situation. Right. It
6: all goes back to a strong, I'm going to try to keep a straight face, but uh, a strong woman that could see what needed to happen mm-hmm. for me, you know, and helped kind of gently steer me there because... Fixing the way I thought about myself and what is possible it changed my my life more than plants, more than running, more than any of these things. It's what went on inside my mind mm-hmm. in the beginning, right? And she,
1: uh, you know, she was always able to see that better version of you she's locked always, in there.
6: She's always thought, I, "I'm so awesome." And I never could understand why. You know what I mean? I never, and that's got to be frustrating for a person to be constantly telling somebody how amazing they are, and that person's completely like, eh, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. you know I'm a and being a complete rain cloud on any good things that she would say. Like, yeah, but I'm fat or la la la. You mm-hmm. know, and so that has been the most, that you know, how, I, how I've been able to, with help, switch some very simple things in my brain to uh, make me more confident, you know, not, not fake bravado confident, like really deep confidence in myself that, that you know, I can set this goal, this running goal, Mm. There's more complex life shit. Life shit that you, that <laughs> yeah. is not so. That's one draw to running is Dude, like it never ends. Yeah, it's you like, know. here's this thing that I'm in control of. That I I. It's very simple. All you have to do is go grind. And are you willing to do it? Mm-hmm. And when you that makes you, I think makes me a better person than all the rest of my interchanges with other humans or Mm -hmm. situations in my life i'm with you man i mean you
1: know particularly the part the part about having you know a strong partner who can see who can see the the real you and you know locked inside of you and and i had a very similar experience with julie i mean you know i was a i was dense you know dense and like just like physically heavy but just kind of emotionally dense and she was always able to like See through that Mm -hmm. and believe that there was something better in there, and rather than push me to just hold that space for me to come out, right? And and that's a very different thing from being somebody who's trying to force somebody to do something, but just holding that like neutral space and like never wavering in that belief is Mm -hmm. like this magnet, you know, like that's calling to you, Mm -hmm. and when the time is right you know to be able to kind of blossom
6: out of that and step into it. I mean it's it's beautiful. It is. And it and it and it echoes a lot something that I've adopted uh lately is in is this this sort of concept, this this analogy that I use that you know I I can I think of myself or I try to think of myself as as a lighthouse, right? And so, all I can do is be steady and bright, and and just shine as bright as I can, and be a rock. You know what I mean? I'm unwavering, and I'm okay with being that. I'm un, I'm okay with that. And um, that's in a lot of ways that's what my wife has been for me f- all the time we've been together, and 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 um, so. I learned that, and I'm trying to use that in now in running and plants. I'm trying to use that uh, that that same model that just to not be pushy, but I'm gonna be so bright and so I'm just I'm you can't miss me. Mm -hmm. You cannot miss me, (laughs) and that's the point. Uh
1: Widely considered one of the world's best free runners, a discipline more commonly referred to as parkour, Timothy Sheaf can do things with his body that you simply can't. But what's interesting about Timothy is how he leverages his athletic talents and public profile as this sort of subversive political art form, raising positive consciousness and awareness about issues that he cares deeply about. Tim is passionate about the vegan movement. He is a man of ethics and antics, as he would say. Uh, Highly intelligent, very thoughtful and mindful. I just I love his perspective and his activism. And the bottom line is, we need more guys like
7: Timothy. Here's why. I remember when I was eight years no even younger than that six seven eight years old. I was I'd win sports day every day every year like the the fast race. Uh I was the fastest kid in my school, and then I got into soccer and then I got into breakdancing and parkour and my body type kind of changed from the breakdancing because I was maybe 15 to 18 I was doing a lot more upper body and I wasn't running as much mm-hmm. um, but that was you know the, the, for me the spiritual journey is the return to innocence and the return to youth and how we felt the angelic light state when we were a kid and that's what I was born to do I was a fast kid mm-hmm. and maybe this is like I've gone full circle You're coming, back, coming to back to what I was when I was a kid and again with the things that have come along with that Is my libido is completely dropped? Like, I don't know if there's something with that, but in in a pure way, in a positive way, that it's like, um, I practice no fap. I don't know if you know that one, which Mm -hmm. is like no no masturbation. Right. Um, When did that come? Hold on a second. Yeah. So when did that come in? That's like part of the whole spiritual thing. You see the vegan thing. You see other things, and that's one that pops up again, like cold Uh showers and no fap. So it's because it's supposed to empty your lower two chakras when you Mm -hmm. have that release. And I don't, I'm still experimenting if it's like, if it's done in like, I don't know if sex empties your lower two shackles or if it's done in a pure way or if or if it's, if it's just masturbation or what. But anyway, so I did did do that Okay, on and off for a bit when mm-hmm. I had like competitions coming up and thing. The Ninja Warrior, I did it for a month and I had cold showers every day and I did well. It seemed to work in that. Um... But you never know what's related to what there's only, right. so, many, so that's why it's a constant life journey, but anyway well, it's an it's it's sort of symbolic of just being committed to. yeah that's true that's a good point um but anyway, since running i've actually it's not even like there's been no desire to there's been no i'm just wake up, i want to run, I want to train, i want to hang with mates, and I can hang with females as well is there's less like that need that desire to have to impress a girl or need. Mm-hmm. To get something back i don't know it's just it's really helped just but i think part of that me.
1: don't you think part of that also is you know the more comfortable you are in your skin and mm. kind of like self-assured about who you are yeah. and running can play a part in that i think it certainly has for me then that aspect of the ego becomes diminished
7: i, I think that's definitely a massive factor of it and that mm. and i think maybe the constant uh Bounce on your ball, on, your, on your every well, <laughs> or this, adrenal fatigue real, adrenal yeah. fatigue yeah or that constant uh is like dissipates that energy that can get stored there because it can certainly control your brain when you give it time and you do that frequently it can take it can become where your mind kind of goes to and right. when you stop that, and then a the mixture with it i don't know if it like yeah like the vibration mm-hmm. massages that control out of you kind of thing or what but right. I feel a lot just yeah just like I don't need I, don't, I feel like I'll never get married never have a girlfriend I love children but I don't know if I'll ever have a kid I, I just like not saying I'm, I'm like celibate or like removing or anything mm-hmm. but just in a way that I'm content with, nothing, with, with not soul, needing that with, soul warrior yeah, yeah.
1: well the uh, the Shakti is, is is moved from the root chakra which is kind of a lower vibrating place to be spiritually yeah. and elevating up hopefully more more towards the third eye yeah that's it And right. i've got this
7: little necklace this heart chakra necklace on uh-huh. that's the heart i chakra. like that man yeah yeah that's
1: cool <laughs> <laughs> so uh i mean you're a big guy you're 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 kind of a top heavy guy but you've definitely leaned out since the last time i saw you mm. and obviously you know running i'm sure has played a part of that i mean how do you how do you kind of balance um you know what running is doing to your body with maintaining you know the, the upper body strength that you need to do what you do as a free runner
7: I, I don't do anything in the way of maintaining. I just train what I want to train every day, and mm-hmm. if my body changes, it changes. The biggest factor in my body size has always been diet. If I'm eating, I ate veggie grill like three times last week, and that's you know it's yeah. quite heavy vegan food. It's not the best. Mm-hmm. And that, and I stay size. I keep size. If I eat raw, I lose size. Even though I ran as much mm-hmm. as I ran last week, which is more than I've ever run in my life. And so many calories, supposedly, like any app will tell you you burnt this many calories. Mm-hmm. Yet I'm no thinner for it because of what I ate. If I eat raw, then I lose weight. Leading up to the marathon, I'm going to the Woodstock Fruit Festival before it, and I'm going to be raw for like two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to lose some size. Right. And that'll be right after my UK Ninja Warrior. So I trained Ninja Warrior last week. I didn't. I'm not aiming to maintain, but I was training for that competition. Um, So I've definitely still got some size upper body. Then once that competition is done, I think I will then do no upper body and just eat fruit. But there's no real aim other than I'm enjoying running. I'm going to keep doing that. If I lose upper body, then so be it. But I definitely look in the mirror and I just see way more of a balance and connection Mm -hmm. between my upper body and lower body. There'd be times when I'd go out and try and train and I'd feel like it would take me so long to warm up my legs to get that engine started. And since running... I think it strengthened some core connection between my upper body, and, and I guess sitting in chairs doesn't help. Mm-hmm. It kind of just shuts off your whole lower body, stops the blood flow, kind of thing. And just since running, yeah, it's just strengthens something between me, and I feel like one more fluid machine. And this is just the beginning. You know, I'm excited to just keep training and improving and noticing the progress.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, so you're not super dogmatic about being 80, 10, 10 like
7: all the time. No, I, I think that's definitely. I always. Uh, say that's an optimum way. That's the way nature provides it. That it doesn't provide massive amount of fats and it provides protein if you eat leafy greens. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah.
1: Yeah, cuz there's a pretty big gap between the difference between, you know, veggie grill and eating a raw diet. Like yeah. the only thing in common that they have really is that there's no animal products in them, but <laughs> yeah. you know, veggie grill for people who are listening who don't know is a is is a I wouldn't call it fast food, but it is sort of convenient mm-hmm. food that's that it that's vegan, but it's sort of um, mm. You know, it's not exactly. All, you can have super healthy options there, yeah. but usually when I go there, I'm eating like the buffalo mac wings and, cheese, and the mac. Yeah, like yeah. vegan mac and cheese. It's like comfort. Yeah, comfort I mean that, food. For,
7: that's a mi- for me that's a mixture of my own weakness, and at the same time, I was out there with friends, and none of my friends there were vegan, but they were very open minded people, and so you take them there. They yeah. came there with me, and they're like, "Oh my! Like they just think we eat rabbit food, man." I always forget people mm-hmm. think vegans just eat fruit and veg all day. They don't realize that if you want to, you can eat exactly as you ate before, but without supporting the animal industry. Mm-hmm. And that's what Veggie Grill shows people. They go, "Oh, you can have this," you know. And then that yeah, helps it actually them. tastes pretty good. Yeah. Like the
8: chicken sandwich thing they have there—the
1: chicken is unbelievable. <laughs>
7: <laughs> how, how good the chicken uh-huh. does taste, like yeah. But yeah. again, it is as we always say. You know, vegan diet is about the simplicity, and it's not about creating these replicas. But for people. Transitioning or showing them, you know, it's exciting yeah. that that it exists. Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, you know, for me, like I don't need a meat analog. Like I'm past that. You know, yeah, it's like absolutely. I don't, I don't desire it. Like I've kind of, you know, evolved know that, away yeah. from that. But you know, I think it's. You know, it's important to understand that for a lot of people, you know, maybe even most people, you have to provide some kind of alternative that provides a safe, kind of welcome landing ground for people to then embark on their own journey. For, so, for example, I just this past week I put up um, my interview with Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat, and I know you went and just visited him at his headquarters. And I love what he's doing. You know, he's trying to innovate a new way of feeding the world that is not dependent upon industrialized animal agriculture. And he understands and implicitly recognizes that in order to do that in a mainstream way, you have to create a product that is equally delicious to a hamburger or a chicken strip. And that's his goal. And I put that up and and you know the, the response to the, to our conversation is overwhelming overwhelmingly, you know, amazingly positive, but you have the occasional person who's like you know, why would you even want to create something that tastes like that? Like, that's not what, you know, being vegan is about. And it's like, you have to, if you really want change on a mass level, you have to meet people where they're at and provide an alternative that is going to be accessible for them. And so when you eat that beast burger and you're like, wow, that tastes a lot like a hamburger. You know, for me, that's a little bit weird because I haven't had anything like that in so long, but that's how you're going to get people to, you know, get comfortable with doing something different than they always right, have. Right,
7: protein on the box. That's what they need. Yeah. To, that's what they <laughs> yeah. need to do. But that's yeah. the biggest thing. People always, mm-hmm. still to this day, you know, I've not wasted away in this. You know, it's only been two, three years, but I don't ever eat a meal where I feel I better get my protein in, mm. and yet <laughs> it's mm. never an issue. Yeah.
1: It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Obviously, we talk a lot about food on the podcast, particularly the health, environmental, and ethical implications of our collective dietary choices and the global impact of the industrialized food industry on the same. But you might be less consciously aware of the massive extent to which the garment industry impacts a wide range of concerns, everything from global climate change to animal welfare to ethics and beyond. In other words, fashion is a world that desperately needs an environmentally conscious, sustainability focused and ethically driven facelift. Here's professor, writer and fashion designer Joshua Catcher.
8: There there is a piece written by an editor, a new editor at Stylecaster and Stylecaster is a website that does a lot of fashion reporting. They're sort of along the lines of WWD, Women's Wear Daily, mm-hmm. which is considered, you know, the the foremost authority mm-hmm. on fashion news. But Stylecaster is a little younger. It's web. It's totally web oriented, um, and they do things to get attention, like most websites want to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, this editor wrote uh, an article called "I Re- I Wear Real Fur and I'm Not Ashamed," and you mm-hmm. can just tell by the title that that mm-hmm. was intended. To get a lot of traffic and get a lot of comments and get people riled up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read it, the tone, the the talking points, it came. It looks like it came right out of a fur industry marketing handbook. Right. Um, so I just read it. I read through it, and you know, here is this influential young woman who's in a powerful position, and that's amazing. Um, but she she goes on to make some very false claims about the fur industry and. Um, and it's really it, it hurts. It, it impacts lives when when people make those claims. It makes people feel better mm-hmm. to oh, it's okay. it's okay to buy fur now because you know this one editor right. went to a, a marketing website and read their talking points.
1: Well, so, what is it that's that what were these points that she was purporting that are false? That, that it might be you know that maybe you could disabuse you know people's ideas of how that how that business functions.
8: You know she she poses one of the classic, uh, concepts, which is I I now eat meat, so why should I care about fur? Why why is it okay to be contradictory? And I think that that is a huge problem overall. Like no none of us can be perfect. None of us are pure, and mm. I don't think mm. that that's what any social justice movement is about. It's not about being perfect and pure for yourself. It's about being effective and bringing about change. And when I was three, my mom told me two wrongs don't make a right. So mm-hmm. I think that that's still. Just listen to your mom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my mom. My mom pretty much had it down. Two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you're gonna, you know, now choose to eat a steak doesn't mean it's also okay to confine an animal for its entire life in a tiny cage and then, you know, kill it in a horrible way and mm-hmm. just for something as frivolous as a, an accessory. Mm-hmm. And. Um, but there's this idea that if you know if I'm not perfect already, why why bother doing anything else? Right.
1: Why well, why bother leaving your apartment?
8: Yeah, you know, yeah. Why why not just you know co- commit all of the horrible acts that I can because I because I'm doing <laughs> right. one. Because you already thing. did it. <laughs> <Your> yeah. <joke. laughs> if I'm already going to hell, I may as well have fun. I think that's kind of yeah. the attitude. Hmm. But there's something beneath that, and I think that what she really is attracted to is the symbol of fur and fur still symbolizes power and sex mm-hmm. and luxury and class and all of these things that we really desire in this culture
1: the history is pretty fascinating right it Going is back a, to
8: like Henry VIII and yeah yeah i mean i, I think, I think it, was, it went before that uh, edward the <laughs> well, 3rd he mm-hmm. he made these sumptuary laws which basically made fur a status symbol by law so if you were only if you were noble or you know, in, in a, a, a royal could you wear most of the kinds of fur, especially something like ermine. Mm-hmm. When you see a picture of a king or queen from, that, from the Middle Ages and you see those, those white furs with the little tufts of black coming out of it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a trope that we see when we see royalty represented. Mm-hmm. That's ermine. It takes hundreds of ermine. They're little creatures to make one garment. So furs like that only, you know, you could, be, you could be arrested, you could be put to death if you were a commoner who wore fur. So these laws lasted for hundreds of years. And you have generation after generation of people believing that only the very most powerful people wear fur, mm-hmm. and I think we still can see the ramifications of that today. Right. It creates an entrenched system in which
1: uh, it's just understood that if you're wearing this garment, that that what comes with that is a, a you know a sense of status, yeah. and, and and luxury, and mm-hmm. all of these things that we associate as aspirational in our culture.
8: Absolutely, so. and it's such a, it's such an interesting garment to try to analyze from a sociological standpoint, from a historical standpoint, and from a psychological standpoint. Because I think what happens is that fur, because we know now how it's made, most people know, instead of it turning us off to it, it becomes a transgressive naughty indulgence. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's cruel almost makes it more desirable. And that's some psychological acrobatics that is a little difficult to wrap your head around but yeah. when you look at our culture from a from the standpoint of cuisine and the standpoint of a lot of other things we gravitate towards things that were the crueler the more gruesome the more enjoyable it's a, it's believed to mm-hmm. be this right exotic, like the baby in, veal right yeah. yeah foie gras
1: or like an exotic
8: indulgence yeah it's this idea that because it was so terrible it must really be amazing the the payoff has to be equally, you know, as heightened as 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 the production was gruesome. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I think there's a practice in France that's still um, done under, you know, behind closed doors uh, at certain restaurants, and people will hide their head under a veil when they're eating this because of the shame. Mm-hmm. But it's also a status symbol to be eating under the veil, and it's it's basically a bird that's soaked in uh, in some form of liquor, and then set ablaze alive. And then you eat it after it's burned to death. And I don't remember the exact name, f- what this is, but I think that's sort of along the same lines uh, when we talk about fur we talk about right. veal, and we talk and about peel
1: and we talk about there There's the monkey brain thing, too, right? I don't know where exactly that is. somewhere it's in, in the Asia east. Where they, yeah, they, yeah, you crack the skull open. Mm-hmm. It's While like the, the monkey's It's the table. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I
8: saw, I remember watching... When I was in high school. Like faces of death. Faces of yeah, death. Yeah, they did. <laughs> that was the that, documentary right. that actually started have me thinking about animal sentience. Oh, really? And, Interesting. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I was in an after-school club called Swift, Students with Ideas for I Tomorrow.
9: <laughs> that's awesome. Yes, let's get you
8: ready for the World Fair with that. And <laughs> look at
9: how well it, it impacted you. I guess I was.
8: It worked. I was there just because I had friends that were in it. I really didn't. I wasn't somebody who who cared that much about um world events or issues. I didn't see myself as even a a valid person to be addressing issues. I I was just like, oh, I'm I'm sort of just in the background. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna just float through life and I'm not a decision maker. And um, I think that that was a very formative year for me when when I joined that club and I saw that video and I started, it just, it was the first time in my life that I thought that the adults weren't right I was like, oh, maybe they're not doing things right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they don't have all their shit together.
1: Yale, Penn, and Harvard-trained cardiologist Robert Osfeld, MD, is the founder and director of the Montefiore Hospital Cardiac Wellness Program, which is an immersive, holistic, preventive medicine program serving the underprivileged residents of the Bronx with team-based approach to patient care that promotes a whole foods, plant-based diet, and intensive lifestyle habit accountability. Dr. Osfeld is an extraordinary guy, radically and permanently improving the health and wellness of those that need it most. Let's hear what he has to say.
10: Yeah, there's a lot of really exciting things about, about my job. And um, so I'll give you, for a typical week, there's a lot of variety. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and you know I'll get a chance to teach medical students, residents, fellows, see patients in the clinic, which means like if you go to a doc and you're sitting in the waiting room reading mm-hmm. whatever magazine and you go in and see them, that's, that's clinic. Uh, one day a week, I'll read ultrasound pictures of the heart. Um, and uh, other weeks, I'll be on service. And uh, I was on service a number of weeks ago. And what that means is a patient's admitted to the hospital. Um, and if someone has a question, they'll consult the cardiac service. So I thought to myself, okay, on any given day, I'm going to count how many patients I see. These are new patients coming into the hospital with with some sort of cardiac complaint. So they're a little bit enriched for Mm -hmm. cardiac issues. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to count how many I see, and then I'm going to pick these four disease processes. I'm going to pick diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, or obesity. And I'm going to just see how many of them have one of those four problems on just one day. And so I saw 20 patients that day in the hospital, and not 12, not 15— but all 20 of them had at least one of those diseases that may have been prevented or reversed with a plant-based diet. And then the very next day, uh, um, a patient in their early 20s came in with a garden variety heart attack. You know, there, there early wasn't 20s. Early 20s came in with a garden variety heart attack. There wasn't, you know, some peculiar, very uncommon genetic predisposition. Obese? Um, no a little overweight, but not obese. Mm-hmm. Um, and there weren't any illicit substances in, involved. It was just a garden variety heart attack. And I'm going to ask the, the listeners, that: what percentage of 12 to 14-year-olds in the Western world, the US, do you think have early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels in their heart? Want so, me to like, answer that? Or yeah, yeah sure. Them to, I would say very high percentage. Okay. Yeah, so you're definitely on it. And someone someone will be thinking 1% because they're going to do like the right. prices right thing. All yeah. oh, the prices right, you know, get that oh, low number. You, yeah, you got to go low, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, but you're absolutely right. It's about 65. 65% ah. of 12 to 14 year olds in the US have early signs of cholesterol disease in mm-hmm. the blood vessels that feed their hearts with blood. And we know that from pathology studies of kids who died for other reasons. And then, I mean, you don't have to worry because it gets worse. Uh, Because as you're pointing out heart and blood vessel disease is the number one killer of adult men and women and There are about two heart attacks every minute in the US. So maybe we've been talking for 60 minutes That's 120 heart attacks have occurred in the US during this one hour that we've been speaking so um, a typical patient that I'll see
1: hold on one second like let's just let's break that down a little bit because That's so shocking and extraordinary. And simply, you know, I want to like emphasize this idea that heart disease begins, you know, at a very young age with the habits that you form as a youngster with Mm -hmm. respect to your lifestyle and your diet. And, you know, we have lots of friends that are super healthy parents, they love their kids, um, and they struggle with trying to trying to implement healthy eating habits in their kids. You know, like, ah, oh, you know, we eat so great, but you know, I just can't get my kid off the chicken McNuggets, you know? And part of that is like, there's an innocence to that. Like, ah, oh, just let them have the, you know, right. like it's, I'm tired, I've worked all day. Like, I just want, just let them have the chicken McNuggets. You know, I can't deal right now. But when you think of what you just said, that really reframes that discussion. And I think it really turns the volume up on, the level to which that needs to be a priority in parenting our children.
10: I agree. I think it's, I mean, I'm an adult doctor, so I refrain from making specific Mm -hmm. recommendations in pediatrics, but I believe it's never too early to start and it's never too late. And when I, you know, see kids eating those kinds of foods, the animal-based products, the nutrient-not-dense, the processed foods, it just really bums me out. And I know at the end of the day, sometimes... it. You just gotta get the kid to eat, mm-hmm. and so. But uh, I wish that they would be plant based, mm-hmm. um, and there's just every reason to believe that taking that approach from as early as possible is going to be the most healthful for the kid. And I'm not—I don't want to get specific into pediatric recommendations. And just along those lines, I have some friends who um, have raised their kids plant based. And, you know, it takes some work. But now when the kids are hungry and they want a snack, they're like, oh, mom, can I have some cantaloupe? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, like what you've taken on, you know, you are taking on the onslaught from society of, you know, eat this animal product, eat this processed chip. Just the marketing
1: machine alone when you turn the television on
10: exactly right you
1: know, is overpowering
10: and they've been able and the, the you know influence from their friends and stuff they've been able to counter that uh, i think is so impressive mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's a very it's difficult it's it's not easy but it also is doable it's not impossible you Agreed. know we've and it's a journey it's not an it's not an overnight thing either um but i think when you you know to use the example of the kid who's eating the chicken mcnuggets it's it's about a lot more than that one instance of that person eating that thing. Because every time you make that choice, you're reinforcing a habit. And when right. you're young, those habits you know, are fluid, but they quickly become cemented. And then as you and I both know, when you're you know later in life, yeah. it's a lot harder. You know, it's like, try to learn a language now right. versus when you're 12, you know what I mean? Like it's a different thing. So it's that precious time where you have that kind of influence over your children and you can set them on you know, a better trajectory. And I think it deserves, you know, like hitting the pause button on, you know, the timeline of what we were going through with you to kind of just bear witness to that.
10: I totally agree. And I mean, like, especially when the kid's really young, that's a lot of brain development. I mean, from a 10,000 foot view level, it sure makes sense to me that you want to bathe that kid in as many phytonutrients and antioxidants mm-hmm. as you possibly can to maximize their, their 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 brain development and their vascular development as much as you can.
1: Hailed as the conscience of the food movement by Time magazine, Gene Bauer is the president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary, which is the first animal rescue organization dedicated to farm animals. He's also a marathon runner. He's an Ironman athlete. He is incredibly handsome and charming, as well as the author of Living the Farm Sanctuary Life, a cookbook and lifestyle guide that advocates for a more principled, harmonious, mindful, and compassionate approach to living and eating in harmony with nature and your values. I love this guy. Gene is just he's, – he's just an awesome guy. Here's why. Well, it's quite a trajectory. I mean, we talked about it at length in the last time we spoke, so I don't want to retread too much of that. But at the same time, I think it bears notice that, you know, that's a long road from from that day to kind of the awareness and what's happening right now and the whole vegan plant-based movement and what's going on with uh, environmental awareness and conservation and, and diet and health and... and you know to you being on the pages of time magazine answering 10 questions you know it was like so cool to see that like it's amazing it must just feel like wow you know like i was onto something back then when no one was paying attention and you just stuck with it you know from the early days until now and uh and that's got to be quite affirming
11: it feels so good to see the kind of energy around this movement now mm-hmm. and i think you know, in addition to animal activists, we have environmental people, we have health people, we have athletes like yourself who are setting an amazing example. We have chefs that are creating food that is so delicious that nobody can say that you give things up by becoming mm-hmm. a vegan and eating plants instead of animals. So there's so many great things around this movement right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I just uh, was talking to a friend of mine the other day. <clears throat> Longtime vegan, plant based guy, you know, has been to every restaurant. Like he's eaten at every vegan, you know, all, he's well traveled and everything had never gone to crossroads in LA and went there for the first time the other week and it just it blew his mind. You know, he blew his mind. He blew, it blew his mind that A, it was filled with people that weren't vegans that just were enjoying it. And he was just amazed at the creations that that Tal could come up with. You know, and of course that's very gourmet, it's very high end and all of that, but just the fact that it even exists at all it's, is it's like art. amazing. It's yeah.
11: art and, and it, it shows clearly that you, you can have everything you want, all the flavors, all the textures by eating plants instead of animals. And, you know, I think that there still is to some extent a a general prejudice against vegan food and vegan living. And so Mm. if somebody tries something that's vegan and they don't like it, they will sometimes conclude incorrectly that Uh well vegan food's terrible i don't like it (laughs) after one thing you know but if somebody eats a a bad dish hopefully it's
1: not your veggie (laughs) dog
11: it might have been yeah (laughs) you're doing more harm than good (laughs) i sometimes Uh, wonder you know because if you know i used to always think something vegan on the menu was a good thing but now i'm increasingly thinking it better taste good
6: you know because
11: people are going to Going to try it, it better be something that they enjoy, so that, that that the existing prejudice against this kind of food doesn't kick in,
2: mm-hmm.
1: especially if you label it as such. Like you know, if you look, if you put a label on a bunch of kale and say this is vegan, then people are making a like a a, a, a judgment. Uh, about this whole lifestyle and diet based on this food, as opposed to just handing them this and saying, here, why don't you eat this without making any kind of, you know,
11: Judgment, pronouncement about yes. what it is. Yeah. That's very true. And I think that's something that's happening too. Restaurants that are vegan are not broadly proclaiming mm-hmm. to be vegan. And people are trying it because that um, prejudice that they have doesn't come forward. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of the prejudices against vegans are starting to fall away. You know, one of them is that the food is not tasty, for example. Another is that vegans don't get all the energy they need to do triathlons and to Mm -hmm. do other incredible athletic feats. So that's another thing that I think is starting to fall away, those prejudices. Um, And that vegans are a certain type. You know, vegans span the the spectrum. You know, there are left-leaning vegans. There are Mm right-leaning vegans. There are very health-oriented vegans. There are some that are not so.
1: Are there any vegans in the tea party? There probably are,
11: believe it or not. Uh, that would be interesting. I'd like to get that guy on the podcast. <laughs> How does that work? I definitely know there are some conservatives who are vegans who mm-hmm. have spoken out, in fact, against what happens to animals on factory farms and who have spoken out against the, you know, humans' mistreatment and disrespect for other life on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, this does really span the spectrum.
8: Mm-hmm.
11: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not,
1: I mean we joke, but like truly, like a true conservative perspective, uh you know, why does that um obviate a sense of compassion? You it know sure, tra- compassion transcends political affiliation, you know. So
11: Absolutely why not? and I, I think, you know, in some ways, in fact, uh progressive values sometimes come out of the idea of conserving nature mm-hmm. and preserving things and holding on to things that are important and and, and I think that some of those Notions can be go in a direction that's not very healthy and becomes judgmental and judgmental and disrespectful, mm-hmm. but you know ultimately it is about respecting nature, respecting each other, respecting other life, other animals, and living in a way that is compassionate and and most people are for that, you know whatever their political
1: you could make. An argument that it is an extrapolation of the pro-life perspective. It
11: yeah, absolutely. there have been stuff written on that. In fact, mm,
1: oh, has there? That's really interesting.
11: Yeah, Matthew Scully is a, a former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, who wrote something along those lines, saying that those who are pro-life should also be pro-animal life, mm-hmm. and that logically they're very much aligned. You know, so you know, there's a lot of different perspectives. You know, and then of of course, you know, you have to look beyond, you know, I mean, the, the, lives of women also matter, you know, so this is, it's complicated. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a black and white thing.
2: <laughs> no. This
1: past month, we navigated the passing of Julie's 92 year old father. Uh, and it was an incredible, very up-close and personal experience with death, which is a subject that we don't really like to talk about and don't talk about enough. Because in general, our cultural relationship with death breeds fear, and fear breeds resistance. Resistance breeds denial, and denial never helped anyone. In other words, not a healthy relationship with death. So let's form a new one. Here's Julie. You seem to be always cultivating that relationship in a conscious way, like, and you've said very often, like, I'm not afraid to die, I'm not afraid to die. And, and I sort of think, okay, well, we'll see what that looks like when it actually happens because it is so terrifying. I mean, do you really hold to that idea that you think that, um, you know, when that moment arises, unless it happens suddenly, you know, in, a, in sort of an accident kind of way, that you'll be able to, Navigate it without fear.
9: Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. But I've spent most of my life cultivating that muscle. So I'm not saying that I won't feel sadness or I, I cry. I cry about my dad. There's a part of me that I'm sad about it. I'm not trying to keep him here, nor is anyone else. Um, so I'm still very human. I'm a human being, but I've never been an illusion that I was never going to die. And in more than that, and I've said it before every time I kiss you, I know. Every time I kiss any one of my kids, I'm very aware of it always, all the time. It's never not, I'm never not aware of it.
1: And what is the practice that you rely on predominantly to cultivate that awareness?
9: Well, it's uh, it's been informed by meditation. It's also been informed by um uh the the death of a of a dear friend of mine's son. Um, uh, that happened many years ago and and I experienced that with her very 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 closely like I was her closest friend I was with her through all the horror of, the, of that so th- I would say that that really really sort of brought it up um, you know very viscerally for me um, but even before that I was always very very aware very aware of the temporal um, quality of life and it makes living my life very, very rich because I'm very aware of it.
1: But how, but, but how does somebody who's listening to this who might not have had those kinds of experiences, how can, how can one cultivate you know, that kind of um, you know, healthy appreciation and awareness that can help uh, you know, improve the quality of day-to-day life and, and maybe obviate some of that fear?
9: Well, it's by having an inner focus. And observing yourself and entering into a meditation program. You know, I have an amazing meditation program that we offer called Jai Release. Um, It's very, very, very powerful for starting to get you connected to the fact that you are a spiritual being having human experience. And then if you need more, if you need more evidence, like turn the news on, like look around, like what's happening. You know, it's like understand if you're medicating yourself by shopping. Or by drinking or by using or by, you know, being addicted to social media or like this whole illusion that, you know, because you have a lot of Instagram followers, suddenly, you know, you're immortal. (laughs) It's like it's it can be kind of funny and kind of amusing how we as humans set up these things around ourselves or getting very attached to a certain way of living like like that's going to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's going to then make you immortal and you're not going to die. Now, in my perspective, I practice yoga and I study the practices of yoga like pranayama, like meditation, like yoga nidra. I've been cultivating this awareness of what is beyond the body because of any beings on the planet, the yogis. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh you know, acrobatic yoga, I'm talking about real classical yoga, you know, the yogis know, they, they know certain practices, their breathing practices, breath of fire, um, and which take you beyond the body. And, you know, you're not going to, you know, become a, an advanced master yogi overnight, but you will start to cultivate this other awareness of wait a second, like this isn't quite, you know, what, what the whole material world is telling me. And then over your practice, depending on your level of heart, how much you really, you know, do do you really want to have a relationship with the divine? Are you really, do you really want that? And if you want that, the divine will run to you. It'll take, you know, a hundred steps towards you if you take one step towards it. And suddenly your life becomes divine and everything that happens is profound. And, you know, I... I, I have signs given to me all day every day but it's because I'm looking for them because I want them I'm cultivating that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that your dad is satisfied with the life that he's lived? Yes. I mean he seems like he's at peace.
9: Yes, I think he is and I and and also this has been another just uh, just so profound life is so incredibly beautiful but you know my dad and I couldn't have been too different you know more different. We were definitely extremes on the polarity, you know, scale. Um, and yet, you know, there were uh, there were many times where there was a lot of pain between us and a lot of misunderstanding. I can't say that he that he really ever understood me in a human form. Um, we also found times of our life where we were able to connect in a very deep way. So I I found a way to meet him in the areas where he could, where there was a bridge for us. So one of those areas was when I built homes. I built two homes in a six-year period. And my dad was a a civil engineer, a very, very fine, amazing engineer who was the, you know, head project manager for huge um, uh, projects. He built the um, hotel at Alieska, a huge, you know, huge building. Um, And his latest um, project he was the project manager on a $70 million museum um, designed by David Chipperfield. Um, extraordinary building. And he worked for the natives in, in Alaska his whole life. He built mm-hmm. all their hospitals and art centers and everything. So when I built these homes, we could we could meet there. We could meet over the blueprints. We could meet over over that. That was like a, a way for me to connect with him. Um, and... Uh, uh, so, here I am in my in my life. Uh, um, my dad uh, did not understand my um, my affection for the yogi lineage. <laughs> he did not understand. That's an understatement. That's an understatement. Uh, he did not understand um, you know my vegetarianism, my veganism. Although he ate my food and enjoyed it, and just as 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 early as like ten days ago, he said, "Julie." Your food is very different, but it's very good. <laughs> so um, that's you know, as good as it's going to get. No, he was sweet. No, he was always sweet. But I would tell, I would tell you that even though he didn't understand me, if I ever really needed him, he was always there, and he was there financially for me, and he was there for you mm-hmm. as well financially, and as well, um, you know, he always, um, he 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 always tried to support and. Um, he read your book when mm-hmm. it came out, and, uh, you know, he found a way to connect with you as well, even though you're you're very, very different. Right. So, but I guess what I want to say is, again, my dad and I couldn't be more different. Um, I honor and respect him for his choices in his life. It, it is his life. And I told him a couple weeks ago, um, uh, actually, before we went to Europe, he called me to say goodbye to me because he didn't think he was Going to be alive when we returned. And, um, uh, you know, I told him, I said, Dad, you know, I'm going to see you on the other side. And I said, We're going to have a laugh about this play that we agreed to have together. And I said, um, everything in your life is divinely created. And he was the perfect father for me because he allowed me to experience what my soul needed to experience. And that didn't mean, in my case with him, that we were the closest, you know, daddy-daughter. just wasn't like that for us. But if you look at my Vedic chart, it shows in there, Chakrapani told me on my birthday, which I shared like the last podcast that I was on, I had no opportunity of a close relationship with my father. It did not exist in my divine plan. However, because I was able to to see that and to find a place where I could connect with him. By the end of his life, we had resolved that. It had totally come into resolution. and. I, you know, when he called me before I left for Europe, I was like, oh man, I just, I was, I was okay before that. Like I was fine. I, I understood we were very different and I was cool with that. And I knew he loved me the way that he loved me. And I knew that in the afterlife, he's going to go where he wants to go. He's not going where I'm going. He's going where he's, where he wants to go. Um, but, um, what i didn't understand was that i would get this experience of caring for him in the hospital i was with him for two days and he was having a lot of struggle and he was still lucid and still aware in some spaces and i was able to connect with him on a soul level and i had this intimate experience with him and uh he would come in and out, you know, and then he would say to me, hey, you know, how, oh, when did you get here? Or where you been? And I said, oh, I've been around, you know, like realizing that he had forgotten that I had just been with him through this test and that I just done this prayer and this mm-hmm. meditation for him. But I realized at that moment this profound, profound uh, um, truth, and that is that he had certainly been with me when I was a baby. He had certainly held me and rocked me and comforted me. And I did not remember that. And here I was at the end of his life. And, he, and I was comforting him and loving him and kissing him. And he didn't remember that.
1: So uh, this next clip is about fragility. It's about the willingness to confront the painful past as a necessary process of growth because shame can't survive the light and because embracing vulnerability ultimately leads to strength. (laughs) So the story goes, uh, the story relates to something that happened when we were in Hawaii for Ultraman in 2011, mm-hmm. right? It was my third Ultraman. It was an Ultraman after Epic Five and after the two Ultramans that I relate in Finding Ultra. Um, so this is this happened after, you know, Post the story that's told, told in Finding Ultra. And I'd spent an entire year preparing for this race. Uh, and I had very, very high expectations, right? I thought that I was primed to... Uh, if not win the race, be on the podium. And I was so focused in my training and I showed up in Hawaii uh, Thanksgiving weekend, 2011 beyond any level of fitness that I had ever had prior to that. Like all my numbers, my Watts, my heart rate, my running pace, everything was way beyond anything that I had ever, you know, experienced in my training, you know, even in 2009 or, or Epic five or anything like that. So I went into this race, like fully charged. And also with a lot of support, like in 2008 and 2009, we were like, sh- you know, shoestringing this whole thing together, mm-hmm. trying to make it happen. And here we were in 2011, we actually had a lot of crew support. We had a lot of people, you know, helping us out. Like we had no excuses. Right. Um, and I, I definitely was feeling the pressure that comes with that, but I was also very excited to unleash my best performance yet. Mm -hmm. And I got into the water for the 6.2 mile swim and I got out of the water in first place ahead of Jonas Colting, who had won Ultraman before and I clocked two hours and 17 minutes, which was like five minutes faster than I had in 2009. And you know, Many, many, many minutes faster than I had in 2008. Like here, I was at. How old was I then? 45. I think I was 45. 45, three years. 45. 45. Yeah, so I'm 45 years old, and and you know, getting faster and faster and faster. 2:17, one of the fastest recorded swims in the history of that race. Got onto the bike started pedaling up the first hill. And I immediately knew that like something was very wrong. Like I just couldn't get into my rhythm. My heart was racing. I just didn't, I didn't feel good. You know, Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I was like, this is not clicking. Like something is wrong. And I struggled and I struggled and I struggled to make it through that first day. And I think I finished, I don't know what place I was in at the end of the first day, like fifth or something Fifth or something, I can't remember. But I didn't win the first day like I had in 2009. Like I was having a really hard time. And that evening uh, I started spitting up blood and I thought this will just pass, maybe I overexerted myself, showed up the next day, started the ride and just, it was not happening. And I was spitting up blood all morning long and about, I don't know, 40 miles into that first day, something like that, I just pulled over to the side of the road and I was like, it's, it's done. Like I can't, I can't breathe, I'm spitting up blood, something is wrong with me, mm-hmm. right? And it was devastating. Very so. And I have talked about this. I wrote a whole blog post about Mm it, you know, just, just how upsetting that whole thing was to like put so many eggs in that one basket for that one race. And that's what happens sometimes, you know, like it just doesn't go your way.
9: Well, and the difference is that you were not a professional athlete. So it's not like you had another race behind this. It's like, this is the race that that we had prepared for. And we had all of our resources and finally finally we had support finally we were not you know overdrawn in our bank account when you left we had food on the table we had an amazing crew we had you know our friend Compton Rambado with us like it was everything was in place mm-hmm. and here you were spitting blood and you I don't know if you remember but you had night sweats all night and you'd soak the sheets completely all during the night and you didn't tell me um, and I found out later
1: mm-hmm. and you know the other thing that kind of heightened the whole thing was that, you know, I'd sacrificed a lot. Like I'd put aside a lot to focus on the training and the family had sacrificed, you know, to support me in this adventure, right? Like the whole family was behind it, but you know, everybody had to give up a little bit in order to support this dream of mine. You know, I was shouldering that as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, everything that, you know, had to go into like making all of this happen. So the whole thing was very emotionally heightened And I know, and you've written about this, you know, you wrote about this in in your kind of blog post recap of what happened. And then in this chapter that I read, you know, just how upsetting it was for you to say, are you kidding me? Like you're pulling over, you're pulling out of this race. Like after everything that we've gone through to get here, like get back on your bike and finish. Like, I don't care how you feel. I don't care if you're spitting up blood, like act like a professional and get it done.
9: Well, I had that moment there, you know, I had a moment, like, what am I supposed to do? Like as your wife, I wanted to say, okay, honey, you don't feel well, get off. And then, then I considered my role as your crew captain and, you know, imagined myself screaming at you, like, get back on your bike. So I had that moment just because it was such a, such a moment to have to throw in the towel, you know, such a moment. But of course, you know, of course you were split, spitting up blood you know, I snapped back into it and of course you needed to go to the hospital. There was, mm-hmm. you know, better that you're safe and then finish the race
1: yeah and we we did we went to the hospital and you know I had like a basically I had a mild respiratory infection but there wasn't anything that serious but when you're pushing your body to that level like even like the slightest amount of illness in you is going to prevent you from you know performing at an elite level and so I just wasn't able to make my body do the things that I knew it was capable of and that I had trained for, and it was devastating. It's extremely disappointing. Incredibly devastating. And I think in retrospect, looking back on that experience and everything that went into like that year of preparation for that race, I'd become, you know, hyper, hyper focused on on perfecting my fitness and taking everything that I was doing to the next level. And like, this was going to be the thing, right? This was going to be the thing. And as a result of that, I had... um, not attended to other areas of you know my overall well-being and health to the extent that I should have. And the biggest aspect of that was that um, I had kind of decelerated my involvement in my own sobriety and recovery, right? Like I, I never questioned that, you know, I always knew that I was an alcoholic. It was never like I'm not an alcoholic anymore. But I started to be less strident about my meeting attendance and, you know, staying in touch with my sober friends and, you know, so focused on the training that I had deprioritized that very gradually. You know, I never like quit AA or anything Mm -hmm. like that or thought like, I don't need this. Like I knew that I did. I just wasn't putting it first. I wasn't making it a priority.
9: Well, and for us, it was so gradual that none of us even realized it. Like none of us even noticed.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And so, here we are in the wake of this sort of devastating you know, experience and we had rented a, like a little farmhouse up mm-hmm. in Javi where we were gonna stay for a couple weeks after the race with the whole family and, um, and just kind of enjoy some family time as a result of this uh, in, in the wake of this race you know, and, and spend some time in Hawaii. And uh, a couple days after the race, we went down, we drove down the coast a little bit to go to a beach. We had the whole family there And I had, uh, we, we kind of parked our stuff in front of like a fancy hotel resort and you were with the boys and the girls and playing. And like, I, I I think I said like, I'm going to go, I need to go to the bathroom. And I went up to the hotel to see if there was a restroom that I could use. And I noticed that there was like an outdoor bar, you know, and there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of people sitting out there on a beautiful day, you know, enjoying a cocktail. And I found myself like looking at that bar and the thought occurred to me out of the blue, like, maybe I should have a beer. Like, maybe, maybe a drink wouldn't be such a bad idea. It's been so long, like, I don't know, like, you know, what's the harm? What's the foul? It was nothing more than that. And before I knew it, I had like a beer in my hand. I drank a beer. I noticed the family was down the beach. And I thought, I'll have another beer before they come back. And before I could blink, I think I had five beers in me. It happened so fast. It happened so fast. And, and it wasn't like this mental calculus. It was almost this bizarre, impulsive thing where I had forgotten everything. I'd forgotten all the pain and all the hard work that it took to get sober. All the suffering that I had experienced as being know being a drunk and being a drug addict and suddenly there I was in the blink of an eye sitting on a stool in front of an outdoor beach bar in front of a hotel with a buzz on just like that Mm. like nothing
9: Mm.
1: and I remember I think I can't remember exactly what happened but then I think Mathis came up
9: yeah I'll I'll help you out so um no, we, you wanted us to sneak into this resort pool, which was, you, you were quite gregarious. And of course, none of us were any wiser. This hadn't hit, hadn't even thought, hadn't even entered anywhere in our stratosphere, but um, you wanted to go into the hotel pool to go to the pool, but we were already at the beach. Tyler didn't really want to go, but you really wanted to go. So we all sort of just went along because we were trying to cheer you up after, you know, the race, DNF and all that. And so we, you had snuck into the pool and we got in. And then um, Mathis actually told me, I was in the jacuzzi with her and she told me and the other people in the jacuzzi that you were drinking beer. And I automatically corrected her and said, oh no, honey, daddy doesn't drink beer. And she looked at me again and she repeated it a second time. And I corrected her a second time. So then she looked at me again and she said it again. And finally the light went on and I realized what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, gathered the kids and actually Tra- Trapper wasn't even with us. It was just Tyler and the two kids. Trapper had flown back to the mainland uh, to take a test or something. And uh, so we, you know, just from my standpoint of being your partner in this experience it was absolutely mind-blowing and devastating beyond anything I've ever experienced because we had suffered and and sacrificed for so many years and finally we were getting some support and I could not understand or reconcile your choice in this moment and so From where I was, I was questioning every single thing about our relationship. I was angry at myself for trusting you, for believing in you. I could not understand how you could humanly choose this at the juncture where we were standing.
1: Yeah, it defies all logic, you know, and that's the, you know, completely dark, mystifying thing about alcoholism. Like there's no there's no rationality that comes into play, mm-hmm. right? And as soon as you know it was clear to all of you what had occurred, I mean, I coped to it. It wasn't like I tried to pretend like I, and I was like. Well, you this couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is what happened. You know, mm-hmm. this is what happened. This is what I did, and you know, it's a little bit foggy for me. And you probably remember it a little bit more clearly. But the upshot of it was that, you know, I said this is what I did. I don't know why I did it. Um, and I can't remember whether I broke down then or it was a little bit later. But, you know, I ended up going directly to an AA meeting. Uh, Tyler took me. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I completely broke down emotionally in this AA meeting in Kona. Um, and I had to do that humiliating thing of like calling my friends in recovery back in Los Angeles and telling them what had happened, you know, and saying, please help me. Like, this is what occurred. And I called the people that I trusted the most, told them what had happened. Um, But the point is that, you know, I went right back to AA. So when I look back on it, you know, it was like the lamest relapse ever. It was a
9: relapse of like three and a a, half hours? It was
1: like a (laughs) three-hour relapse. Like there was nothing, you know, like nothing... Nothing, you know, it thank God like, it was wasn't nothing, like
9: I right. crashed
1: a car or, no, or anything like that. But like, you could have, you know, I had like a five beer relapse after mm-hmm. many, many, many years of sobriety and a very long stint in rehab mm-hmm. and, a, and a zillion hours sitting in AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And immediately went back to the program and have stayed sober ever since then. Um, but it was absolutely horrific buddhist monk tea master and founder of global tea hut wuda is one part philosopher one part ascetic another part tea harvester and final part educator he's all about the tao of tea as a method of spiritual cultivation Uh, This was one of the most fascinating and soul-expanding conversations I've ever had. And so I think it's a good way to conclude to wind down this episode
5: with this final segment. Enjoy. Uh, T has taught me this, and Zen has also taught me this, which is to learn to have a great love for the simple, to learn how to really, really enjoy and revel in and adore the simplest of things. One of my favorite things in the world for example is when the sun is coming through a window and the incense smoke goes through the shaft of sunlight. I absolutely love that. I could watch that in awe for like hours and hours. I just absolutely adore that kind of thing. I love the grains in wood. I love the like the markings in like a piece of natural stone. I'm very interested in in aesthetics of teapots and and other really really simple things and I think when you cultivate an appreciation for the simple you're also cultivating an appreciation for life itself and uh, I've learned to really really appreciate very 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 small um, things and they don't have to be natural things either just today for example I'm staying with a couple friends in Hollywood and I was I sat for like two minutes just admiring this, the gorgeous wallet that my friend has. Because I haven't, I don't, I'm, you know, obviously don't have money, so I haven't had a wallet in decades. And he just has this, he had the most amazing wallet. It was just really, really amazing. And I was looking at it, it was really well-crafted and not only well-crafted, but seemed like the perfect most perfectly functional wallet that i had ever seen so <laughs> i was really admiring his wallet and and so that kind of thing comes from you know i guess you know like they say almost it's almost cheesy stop and smell the flowers but just learn to appreciate the simple and i think that that is a that is a, that is a practice and a habit that will make life so much more rewarding if you learn to celebrate the little things because so much of the juice is there if you ask you know, because, like we were talking about, gratitude is a practice that you get better at. Running is a practice you get better at. Sobriety is a practice you get better at, so is living. That's why old people are wiser. And if you ask old people like old couples, like old widows or widowers, right? It's almost cliche. they they always answer the same. If you ask an old widower or widow, the thing that they miss the most are all the little things, the little quirks and like the way. He or she did this or that, or walked or laid down. These are the things that like, make up a life. These are the things that are really important. So, learning to appreciate the simple—that's the second to last of the Zen practices that I think everybody can benefit from—is just learning to adore the simplest little things.
1: Yeah, I mean the the question that I was going to ask before. Well, it wasn't really much. Of, it wasn't really as much a question. as just an observation. But it was getting exactly to this, which is that. Um, it really is the simple things. And we have this overdrive kind of compulsion to over-intellectualize and overthink everything and want to sort of divine some kind of crazy, complicated solution for what ails us, what in truth it really is as basic as that. Like the practice of, you know, appreciating the smoke wafting through the, the window can be as profound as you know six months in the chair at the shrink's office or, or what have you right and but for some reason it's easier for us to do that than it is
5: to just sit still just like it's easier i mean for you the perfect analogy it's easier for a lot of people to go buy a bag of potato chips that have like 300 ingredients and in, then it is to like just eat an organic strawberry there's like the simplicity in, you know, when, you, but actually when you start like eating, the, the amazing thing for me about eating vegetarian and, and, uh, and vegan diet for so many years is just like how I never get tired of like just celery. And like mm-hmm. celery is awesome. And, you know, you can you can put some, a little something on celery, but a lot of times cooking, you know, it's the same thing. You can overcook a lot of stuff, especially when it's vegetables. They're, they're just, a lot of it's just really great when it's raw, when it's simple, I mean, I came in here today and your daughter was just eating some berries. And in the center of the berries was some like sauce to dip them in. And I was like, what's that sauce? And she was like, you oh, know, it's got dairy and I'm not going to eat it. I just <laughs> I just love the berries. And she was sitting there eating all the berries. And, you know, that's just, that's awesome. And they were so bright and gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what a treat for her to be able to have like six different kinds of berries on a plate, you know.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, I talk about this a lot also about, um, I mean, you know, we cook about 70% or 65% of everything that we eat, we're so, so we're not all raw. But I also feel like, and when I cook those, it's a very quick cook. Like, I don't cook things all day, and that's why all the recipes in my book are actually very quick, because even if you're cooking, it's just not it's not that long. But the other thing that I really, I feel like we've lost touch with, and it's just the beauty that is provided in nature around us. Like, when you were talking about your favorite thing, You know, my, one of my favorite things on the planet is a lemon, you know, just a lemon. I can hold a lemon and smell it and feel it and, you know, take little bites out of it. And (laughs) I just love it. And there's so many things in the plant kingdom that have been provided us. And, um, you know, I Instagram this week, like artichoke, just an artichoke, like just look at these shapes that appear in nature and you know nature is just the most beautiful and so
5: abundant i this week for the first time in my life i had a meyer lemon
9: oh you had never had one i'd
5: never had one they're amazing they're amazing absolutely amazing they're really good so beautiful and they put the zest in our food it was very good All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I
1: absolutely cannot wait for 2016 and all the amazing opportunities and bounty and experiences and adventures that that year is sure to bring. And I look forward to sharing with you guys amazing conversations uh, on the horizon. Make sure you go to richroll.com to check out the show notes for this episode. Um I have the links to all of the full-length episodes of all the podcast segments that were referenced today. Uh, So if you missed some of those, go back. Please listen to them. Uh, They're all amazing, of course. I also want to make this very special announcement that Julie... Finally launched her own podcast. It's called Divine Through Line. She's got four episodes up as of today uh, two conversational episodes and two like healing techniques. It's very different from my podcast. It's very Julie, uh, very spiritual, and very cool. Uh, she's doing great with it. She's loving it. And I think this is a really great medium for her. So again, it's called Divine Through Line. You can find it on iTunes or you can go to her website, Srimati.com, S R I S-R-I-M-A-T-I. M A T I com to check that out uh of course if you want to delve into the entire rrp catalog the entire of beyond the most recent 50 episodes available on itunes i've got an app for that and it's totally free it's called the rich roll app just search rich roll in itunes or the app store it should pop right up totally free and that way you can carry around uh, all 200 plus episodes of the podcast right in the palm of your hands don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter no spam just good stuff podcast updates and product offers and rebates on that note all my nutrition products now through New Year's weekend are 50% off. Uh, we are trying to clear out our entire inventory so it's first come first serve check that out as soon as you can uh, really great prices on all our remaining nutritional product inventory thanks so much for supporting the show you guys by telling your friends, for sharing it on social media. I am signing off. This is the last podcast of 2015. I will see you guys in the new year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Merry, merry, happy holidays, happy new year. Peace, plants, namaste.